I'm so glad you're going to spend a few minutes with me today as we study a few chapters from my all-time favorite books, the book of Isaiah. We're going to be focusing on chapters 58 to 66. Here's where I'm headed. Anytime I teach Isaiah, I focus on that the words of Isaiah are relevant to our lives today. They're applicable to us today. Because that's where Nephi starts off before he quotes Isaiah, and he focuses on that. Isaiah is also a book that can give us a lot of hope. Nephi read the words of Isaiah, and he adds in, Hey, I read this so I can give my people hope. And we're going to focus a lot on the law of the Sabbath and the law of fasting. Isaiah has the best chapter in all scripture on the law of the fast. We're also going to just kind of talk some topics about Isaiah's prophecies, about the last days, his second coming, and the millennium. So, last days, Christ's second coming, and the millennium. Once again, a shout out to Cedar Fort. I am so grateful for being able to work with them that they published my two-volume set titled Isaiah, Prophet's Prophet. I hope that if you have a copy of it, that it's helped you. That it's made Isaiah a little more relevant, a little more applicable to your life, and it's given you hope. And I just want to review these five scriptures just because I love them. you you got Nephi who's testifying. These words will persuade you to more fully believe in Jesus Christ. They're going to give you hope. That's the words of Isaiah. One of their purposes is to lift up your hearts, to help you rejoice. And there's the encouragement from Nephi. Liken them. Make them more relevant to you. Make them more applicable to you. And then you kind of get the summary, 2 Nephi 25, that they, testimony, they are of great worth. And they're going to come forth in a day when we can understand them, because they are for our day. When the Savior comes, he testified, the words of Isaiah will be fulfilled, all of them. And when they're all fulfilled, then you'll know the covenant that God has made with Israel has been fulfilled. And also, the encouragement to search the words of Isaiah diligently, for great are the words of Isaiah. Now, Isaiah 58 is the greatest chapter in all scripture about the law of the fast. It's going to outline the purposes in verse 6 and 7, the blessings in verse 8 and 12 of the fast, as well as the purpose and blessings of the Sabbath in the last two verses. Chapter 58 has been quoted extensively with prophets and apostles. Matter of fact, there are a couple of bishops of the church who quoted almost the entire thing and then added some application, here's some interpretation, and, and I'll add a couple of those things in this presentation. This is one of the most relevant and applicable chapters in Isaiah to us right now. We're going to talk about the fast that God has chosen. Maybe not the fast that's the miserable kind, or doesn't get it, you don't get anything out of it, <clears throat> but here's a meaningful, purposeful fast to bring us closer to Christ. I'm start in verse 2. And there's a lot of this chapter, just so you know, <clears throat> I'm going to read. Okay? Yet, verse 2, they seek me daily, and delight to know my ways, as a nation that did righteousness... And forsook not the ordinance of their God. They ask of me the ordinances of justice. They take delight in approaching God. Now in verse 2, they seem eager to approach God. But the voice in the first voice verse is warning us of the transgression that Isaiah is going to expose. They seem eager. They seem to be doing what's right. In their hearts, they're not eager. Nor are their motives pure. They want to be seen as righteous. But in their private desires... And they're somewhere else. So you get verse 3. Wherefore have we fasted, they say, and thou seest not? Now, anytime Isaiah asks a question, it's good to answer it. Does God see it? Of course he does. Keeping going in verse 3. Wherefore, we've afflicted our soul, and thou takest no knowledge. But in the day of your fast, answer, ye find pleasure, and exact all your labors. Now, that phrase, exact all your labors, means that they would inflict travail or uh, it would be on others. So, hey, we're going to fast, but it's we're going to do our pleasure. We're going to have a good old time. And anybody who needs to work as we're fasting and maybe on the Sabbath, we're going to make someone else do it. We're not going to do it, but we're going to make inflict it on others. Verse 4, here's their purpose. Ye fast for strife and debate. That's your purpose, to argue have contention, <clears throat> and to smite with the fist of wickedness. Wow. Okay. Ye shall, not, ye shall not fast as ye do this day to make your voice to be heard on high. Your motives aren't pure. And you're like, why aren't, why aren't you hearing me, God? 
And I think God is saying, I'm hearing you, but your motives are pure. You're not going to get the blessings of the fast. I have a fast that I've chosen. And here's the purposes, and it's verse 6 and 7. Is this not the fast I've chosen? Okay, Israel, here's my purpose. Number one, loose the bands of wickedness to undo heavy burdens, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke. I love what Bishop Vandenberg, he reads this and he says this, and it's a great summary. Bishop Vandenberg said, quote, I suppose that when he, Isaiah, speaks of losing the bands of wickedness, of undoing the heavy burdens, and the breaking of every yoke, that he's referring to the wickedness of people who think only of themselves in selfishness, vanity, pride, and having hearts so set upon the things of this world that the two great commandments, loving God and loving neighbor, are entirely forgotten. The principle of loving thy neighbor and of loving God are encompassed in the true purpose of the fast. Isn't that awesome? And Bishop Victor L. Brown added this. Verse 6 is teaching us to help us to, quote, overcome the temptations of Satan, as the Savior did. He also said the next verse, I'm going to read next, teaches us to assist the poor and the needy while we fast. So, purpose number one, help you have love. It's to help you undo heavy burdens in your life and others. To help you get rid of wickedness and help others. It focuses with love. And verse 7, is it not to deal thy bread to the hungry? That when thou bring the poor, that thou cast out to thy house. When thou seest the naked, that thou cover him. That thou hide not thyself from thine own flesh. I love those words. Hey, you're seeing somebody hungry or poor or naked. The law of the fast is an opportunity for us to help them out. It's kind of like, hey, I see my cousin over there, and oh, they're in destitute, they're having problems, I'm just going to hide from them, from my own flesh. Hey, my daughter, she's struggling, I'm going to hide, I'm going to like, I'm going to ignore you, and just drive on by, and pretend like you don't know it. The law of the fast is an opportunity to help those. Bishop Vandenberg's wonderful commentary on this, <clears throat> and I love it. He said that the bishop should, should frequently encourage members of his ward to observe the fast day and voluntarily contribute to a generous offering. The Lord knows in his wisdom that individually we are generally not prone to seek out the poor, the hungry, and those in need, and individually attend to their needs on a continuing basis. By fasting collectively, there is no end to the good that can be done, that no one needs suffer, that such assistance might be given is rendered through the bishop in love and mercy, and that full dollar value is rendered without any administrative cost. <clears throat> Having served as a bishop, I can just give you a personal witness. That's true. There's no administrative cost. Every dollar that is contributed to fast offerings is spent on those who are poor and needy. And I love that. I love that sometimes we have the opportunity, for, and I know it's not in every ward, but I loved it when the young man could go out and, and get fast offerings. Because I wanted in my ward to teach them and that they can show that love for others as part of the fast and help other people out. Elder Joseph B. Worthland said, Fast offerings are used for one purpose only, to bless the lives of those in need. Every dollar given to the bishop as a fast offering goes to assist the poor. And President B. Hinckley added this as well, quote, We hope that through the payment of liberal fast offerings, there will be more than enough to provide for the needs of the less fortunate. If every member of this church observed the fast and contributed generously, the poor and the needy, not only of the church, but many others as well, would be blessed and provided for. Every giver would be blessed in body and spirit, and the hungry would be fed, the naked clothed, according to their need. Verses 8 through 12 then focuses on the blessings of the fast that come to us. And I'm just going to kind of go through quite a few of these. And I'm going to put stars by, this is what I do in my scriptures. I put stars by these blessings. So verse 8, Then shall first blessings, the light, thy light, break forth as the morning. Your light, or maybe you could say the light of the world, the, you know, the light is lift up, you're the light of the world. Your righteousness, your example is going to shine for everyone to see as a result of your fasting. 
Next, thine health shall spring forth speedily. There's a blessing of increased health. And we have some of these studies that scientists uh, are more recently coming out talk about the benefits of fasting, intermittent fasting. And thy righteousness shall go before thee. The blessing of the fast is a promise that your righteousness will go before you and influence your decisions. It's going to influence who you become. And the glory of the Lord shall be thy rearward or thy protection from behind. God is going to, is going to protect your weakest point. He's got your back. He's going to be your kind of protection back there. That's an awesome. You fast, God's, going to, God's got your back. Verse 9, and I love this. When thou call, and we all call, the Lord shall answer. When you fast, you have the opportunity to maybe feel a little bit closer to God. I know God hears all your prayers. But when you fast and you call on God, you have a little more connection than he's hearing. You feel it. I mean, you know it up here, but you feel it in your heart. Thou shalt cry. And that's a little bit different. There's a difference between, hey, I'm calling on the Lord. There's a difference when you're crying to the Lord. There's a lot of emotion here. There's a lot of challenges here. There's a promise. You fast when you cry to the Lord. He shall say, here I am. You will feel God, his presence near as you cry to him as a blessing of the fast. Continuing in verse 9. If thou take away from the midst of thee the yoke, uh, the putting forth of the finger and speaking vanity. And if thou shalt draw thy soul out to the hungry, and this is a part of that fast offering, right? You're, you're not just fasting for you, but if you do that to the hungry too, I think that is a part of giving of your time and, and money and your talents to the hungry and satisfy the afflicted soul. I love that. Another blessing. Then shall thy light rise in obscurity and thy darkness shall be as the noonday. So your light will rise above the darkness of the day. Your example is going to be able to be seen. And not that any of us are going to be prideful with that and go, hey, this is my example. No, it is Christ who's our really the light that we're shining. It's a privilege for us just to be doing what he would have us do. There is also that promise as you draw out your soul to the hungry, those afflicted. Your darkness will be as noonday. The darkness will be dispelled as if it's like middle of the day. The darkness in your life will be dispelled. Verse 11, And the Lord, as a result of you fasting, the law of the fast, shall guide thee continually. I love that phrase. He doesn't say how he's going to guide you. I mean, most often that's through the Holy Ghost. Maybe there's inspired uh, family, parents, spouse, priesthood leaders, okay, Relief Society leaders. The Lord will guide thee continually, but you'll know it through the Holy Ghost. And satisfy thy soul in drought. And, hey, we've lived, at least when I'm making this recording, we're in the middle of a mega drought. And so this rings really true to me. We've had those times where we're just, hey, so dry. And you're like going, well, please rain. My garden needs it. My lawn needs it. We're in water restrictions. And sometimes we feel, we, feel, we feel that spiritually. We feel that drought. And the promise, you fast. God will satisfy your soul in the time of your personal drought. The time when maybe you're not feeling as much inspiration, love of God. You want to feel that fast. And... Next phrase in verse 11, he's going to make fat thy bones. And we don't like that phrase all the time because, I don't know, I'm getting a few extra pounds and I don't want them on, right? Don't want to be fat. But make fat thy bones in this context is a richness. It's an increased strength and health. In, in the Old Testament times when you had, this, this phrase is an indication that you're eating enough, that you're healthy. God's going to increase your health. He's going to increase your strength. There's also promise that'll be like a watered garden. Hey, we've all had gardens that have not been watered. <laughs> and the leaves droop. Spiritually, you're not going to be drooping. You're going to be vibrant. You will receive extra spirituality flow into your life as a result of fasting. Continue on verse 11. Okay, that shall be like a watered garden. And you're going to be like a spring of water. And if you've ever seen those rivers that are like murky and icky and dirty, you don't want to have any drinks from those. But you think of that 
spring that's cool, clear, fresh water. You become that, like whose waters fell not. You're going to have that internal source of spirituality that you know comes from God. You're going to be like a spring. You're going to help provide that influence, emotional, spiritual. You're going to help others. Okay, verse 12. And they that shall be of thee, they to thee, that's our kids. That's our grandkids. There's a promise. We're fasting. It affects our children. They that be of thee, they're going to be more like you. They're going to be help builders of spirituality. They're going to build the old waste places. They're going to be builders, not destroyers. I love that, that that influence will help our children. Thou shalt rise up the fount, and thou shalt raise up the foundation of many generations. When you fast, you build on the foundation of faith for many generations yet to come. And thou shalt be called, here's your titles as you fast, the repairer. Isn't that great? I know I stopped early the repair of the breach. And I think of when a dam has a breach and the water's coming out, there's a panic, there is a necessity. And maybe that's when you're fasting, you're close to God, you have the opportunities to be the repair of the breach, to help other people in their lives, to repair the breach that may exist emotionally or spiritually, to be able to repair the breach between them and God. You're the repair of the breach the restorer of paths to dwell in. I love that title. You'll have the ability to help others restore and help their souls come back onto the covenant path of God. Great blessings of the fast. I love that. Now, sometimes people ask, how can I take greater advantage of the privilege of fasting? Now, this is from an article that's on the church's website. Here's just, just some suggestions, and I, I agree with all of them. Begin and end your fast with prayer. Fast with a purpose. There's a few scriptures I'll put up in, in my notes. Fast with a happy countenance. Encourage your family members to fast. Hey, if you want fasting, more the merrier. Attend fast and testimony meeting as a family. Fast for special purposes at times other than on fast Sunday. Pay a generous fast offering, urging your children also to contribute to fast offerings. It's a blessing when you can teach them about fast offerings and have them help contribute to the poor. And teach your family to give offerings willingly and cheerfully. Now, President Hinckley gave this, uh, just this wonderful, maybe summary of fasting and fast offerings. We hope that through the liberal, liberal payment of fast offerings, there will be more than enough to provide for the needs of the less fortunate. If every member of the church observe the fast and contribute generously, the poor and the needy, not only the church, but many others well, would be blessed and provided for. Every giver will be blessed in body and spirit, and the hungry will be fed, the naked clothed according to their need. I know I read that before. But there's so much blessings when we draw our soul out to those who are less fortunate, especially with love during the fast. Now, a couple cautions. This is from President Joseph F. Smith. Both quotes, two different places. Because sometimes there's some realities of fasting. President Joseph F. Smith said, quote, Many are subject to weakness, Others are delicate in health, and others have nursing babies. Of such, it should not be required to fast. Neither should parents compel their ch little children to fast. You don't want to make it that it is something that is very difficult for them. And maybe those who have a weakness or delicate in health. Here's what I've learned. Maybe your fast is only going to be one meal. Maybe it's one hour. I don't know. It's your circumstances you'll know. But you begin it with, with a prayer. You do your time. Not time, that sounds bad. And you end with a prayer. And you say, Lord, if I could, I would. Those nursing babies, maybe it's just the prayer. I know if I could, I would. Please bless me with those blessings because you know my heart's where it should be. Second caution from President Joseph F. Smith. There is such a thing as overdoing. A man may fast and pray till he kills himself. And there isn't any necessity for it, nor wisdom in it. The Lord can hear a simple prayer offered in faith in half a dozen words. He will recognize fasting that may not continue more than 24 hours, just as readily as he does, as effectively as he will answer a prayer of a thousand words and fasting for a month. The Lord will accept that which is enough, with a good deal more pleasure and satisfaction than that which is too much and un unnecessary. Use wisdom. Keep the intent. 
Now, when I do talk about Sundays, I often use an object lesson. I bring in ice cream, and I bring in cherries, and bananas, and whipped cream, and chocolate sauce, and I bring all these things, and we make a Sunday. And oh, I say, oh, what do you want on it? And we just add this Sunday. And then I pull out ketchup and I put it on it. And mustard and barbecue sauce and Worcester sauce and I mean whatever I got in the fridge, honestly. Okay. And on some of them, like mustard, you just see these kids just cringe. And you say, What do you want to put on your Sunday? Like going, give yeah, there's some good things on a Sunday. And that's kind of where I think Isaiah heads is there are things that are really good on other days. Maybe it's the ketchup of life, the mustard of life, the barbecue sauce of life. But on a Sunday, what are you going to do that makes it delightful? Delightful and brings you closer to the Lord. We know that Christ, through his example, honored the Sabbath day. As Isaiah taught in verse 13, if thou turn away thy foot from the Sabbath, from doing thy pleasure on my holy day, if you turn away from doing what you want to be doing, you know, the games, the the, the activities, you, okay, this is my pleasure, and call the Sabbath a delight. That doesn't mean that what you're doing is not joyful. But you call the Sabbath delight the holy of the Lord. Honorable, thou shalt honor him, not doing thine own ways, not doing your own thing, not get your own pleasure. Not speaking your own words. There's an implication here. If the Sabbath's a delight, you're not doing your thing. You're doing things that would bring you closer to God, and that's what you're focusing on. Maybe you're not speaking your own words, but you're speaking the words of God that are bringing to your, into your mind and your heart through the Spirit. I love the repeated phrases in this. You call the Sabbath a delight, in verse 13, thou shalt delight thyself in the Lord. President Russell M. Nelson has given training on this. Part of it is just the Sabbath is a delight. And his question was, how can you ensure that your behavior on the Sabbath will lead you to joy and rejoicing? In October 2015, we had a major training on Sabbath day observance. And, you know, if you want to review that, just so good video, such good discussions on Sabbath day. Elder Quentin L. Cook said this, quote, For members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, honoring the Sabbath is a form of righteousness that will bless and strengthen families, connect us with our Creator, and increase happiness. The Sabbath can be separate from us that which can separate from us that which is frivolous, inappropriate, or immoral. It allows us to be in the world, but not of the world. Truly keeping the Sabbath day holy is a refuge from the storms of this life. It is also a sign of our devotion to our Father in heaven. I love the summary. Isaiah promises that in keeping the Sabbath, you'll ride upon the high places of the earth. The high places of the earth anciently included mountains where prophets communed with God. It also included the Holy Mount or the temple of Isaiah's day. If you always went up to Jerusalem in the scriptures and went up to the temple, you are promised to receive revelation and be able to commune with God. Like being on a high mountain, God will give you increased perspective and expand your vision. As you keep the Sabbath, you'll also be fed with the heritage of Jacob. To feed is to be nourished. What was the heritage of Jacob that, that Isaiah is referring to? It's easy to see the acts of faith in Abraham and Isaac, but Jacob's the middle. Abraham, Isaac, or the last one, Jacob. Jacob was a son who did none other things than which were commanded. Jacob was an example of someone who wrote upon or daily improved and progressed towards God. He was fed daily with spirituality and became an example of being spiritual. He sought out the spiritual high places of the earth. His heritage that he left is simply to daily add God to your life and to become better than you ever could have met become alone. His heritage is to take a normal life and add God to it. He made his life extraordinary. Latter-day Revelation teaches Jacob's heritage led him to an inheritance of exaltation and godhood. So maybe one of the great questions you can ask if you're teaching this is, hey, how can you help your family? Anywhere where you are in the world, make the Sabbath more of a delight. Because the Sabbath should look different. The Sabbath should feel different. The Sabbath should sound different. That's, I know I spent a little bit of time in this on Isaiah chapter 58. It's one of the greatest chapters in the whole book of Isaiah and most relevant to us today. 
may you be blessed as you fast and as you have the Sabbath day of delight. Now, chapter not 20, uh, 59 is, and there's kind of a theme that continues in 59 and goes into chapter 60. Isaiah describes a complete transformation of Israel. And I, and I just pause here because isn't it great? 58 is working you. Here's something you can do to spiritually transform you and bring you closer to God. And now chapter 59 and 60, here's the transformation Israel's going to go through. You start off in chapter 59, Israel's in a state of wickedness. Won't spend much time in those 15 verses. But God then intervenes in verse 16 to 18. He lifts up a standard, which is the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, to follow in verse 19. And he promises he, his presence will be in Zion in verse 20. He will establish the everlasting covenant with Israel in verse 21. Then you go into chapter 60. Isaiah prophesies that Israel will be gathered, rebuilt, prosper, and enjoy the presence of God. Now, just as an introduction, there are a few verses that Christ quotes from, from Isaiah when he returns to Nazareth. And I want to skip to these verses. To get to these verses, we're going to go to Luke chapter 4, verse 16. And he, Christ, came to Nazareth. It's this town growing up where he had been brought up. And, as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read. And I can just imagine, and I'm just picturing him in my mind, goes in, stands up, you got the big Isaiah scroll, and you're going through it, and he knows exactly where he's headed. He's about to declare who he is. Jesus Christ was a student of Isaiah. Verse 17, And there he was delivered up unto him the book of the prophet Esaias, Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. Now I pause there. He doesn't complete the whole sentence there from Isaiah. He stops there because this refers to the men, mortal ministry of Jesus Christ. Verse 20, he closed the book. He gave it again to the minister and sat down. And the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. I mean, what is this guy saying? But the summary, the Spirit of the Lord is upon Christ because he's anointed me. I'm supposed to be here to preach the gospel of the poor, heal the brokenhearted, preach deliverance to the captives, recover the sight of the blind, to set at liberty anybody who's bruised. That's going to be emotionally, spiritually. To preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And then look back to Luke, verse 21. And he began to say to them, this day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. This is me. This is my mission. This is what I'm doing. And all bear witness of him and wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, uh, is this not Joseph's son? Right? They're thinking him of, hey, kind of grown up and Christ is saying, it's now time for me to be a part of my moral ministry. So, Back to Isaiah 61, verse 1 and first part of verse 2 refers to Christ's mortal ministry. Now, the rest of verse 2 that he doesn't talk about is not about his mortal ministry, but he shifts to his ministry when he comes at the second coming. So I'm going to start in verse 2, the full verse, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. That's mortal ministry. Then Isaiah shifts gear, and I think this is why Christ doesn't, doesn't quote it. And the day of vengeance of our God. That's not Christ's mortal ministry. That's a second coming thing. Okay. Verses 2 and 3. That part of second verse 2 and 3 will be fulfilled at the sec as the second coming approaches. And, the f and fully at the second coming. The prophet Joseph Smith declared, In these last days is the acceptable year of the Lord. Liberate the captives that may they may sing Hosanna. So... In our day, preparatory to the second coming, Christ's ministry is to prepare us for the second coming, and that's the rest of these verses. Let me read verse 3. To appoint them that mourn in Zion. So in Zion, Christ is going to help us, preparatory to the second coming. To give them beauty for ashes. Let me just pause here. Okay, there's aspects of the ministry of Christ that are going to happen at the second coming. Okay, one, there's a day of vengeance against the wicked. 
to comfort all those that mourn. Mourning comes not only from natural consequence of sin, but comes in various dosages of sadness, loss, or loneliness. Mourning can come from death or from, hey, maybe the death of a dream. Regardless, through Christ, all mourning will be erased from the hearts and the minds of his disciples. It's his, part of his promise. Part of the promise of his second coming, he appoints those, or preparation for, he appoints or directs those who mourn through his spirit of comfort and through his inspired servants. Verse 3. That phrase, to give beauty for ashes. The ashes might be a result of the destruction of property. Maybe it's the destruction of a relationship. Or really anything else. Christ can heal all wounds. He can make anything that's been, been destroyed beautiful. Also, in verse uh, 61, chapter 61, verse 3, he uses the phrase that Christ is going to give the oil of joy for mourning. The oil of mourning was used to sanctify in Leviticus and to consecrate in Exodus. The purpose is to bring someone closer to Christ, to authorize a servant to be the tool in the hands of God. As servants of God serve him, their joy will be great. Being a tool in the hand of the Lord, hand of God, will always bring joy. And Isaiah also identifies another aspect of the ministry of Christ that occurs at the second coming, is he'll give the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. I'm going to trade you. Spirit of heaviness, you give that to me. Here's the garment, and I love it, of praise. Much more often, we too can give others the garment of praise. There are so many people with no such clothing in their wardrobes, or only a t-shirt. They shiver for want of little praise. Meanwhile, each of us has far more opportunities for bestowing deserved praise than we ever use. How long since you've done that? Perhaps today, for many of you, may be too long for some of you. And then he says in verse 4, And they, now these are the righteous, are going to build the old places. Okay, they're going to raise up the former desolations. They're going to repair the waste cities, the desolations of many generations. As a result of what Christ does, preparations for the second coming. Those who follow him, the righteous, are going to be builders. They're going to be, people, they're going to be ones who raise people up, uplift them. They repair they feed in verse 5. I love these verbs he's using that describe what we want to be doing as disciples of Jesus Christ. And then verse 6, these individuals will be named priests of the Lord and ministers of God. I, I just love that phrase. Priests of the Lord, you have a, a heavenly duty, and ministers, you're doing the acts of God. I just love that kind of idea that Isaiah says, this applies to you too. Now, I'm going to pause and just do an overview of the entire 59 to 66. So 59, Israel's in a state of wickedness. They're invited to transform. And God sets up a standard last days that's going to help Zion. And there's a promise. God's going to give a covenant to those in the last days. In chapter 60, Isaiah prophesies Israel's going to be gathered. It's going to be rebuilt it's going to prosper, and uh, Israel is going to enjoy the presence of the Lord. Now, this chapter is written, it's in a chiastic form, you know, where you have the first thing that's talked about is the last thing, and whatever's in the middle is kind of the focus of that chiastic form, that chiasm. The emphasis in this chapter is in verse 12. That's the middle of the chiasm. And the idea that Zion is the destiny of for the world during Christ's reign during the millennium. That's when Christ gathers, he builds, Zion prospers, especially during the millennium, and they will enjoy the presence of the Lord with them. Chapter 61 goes back to Christ's mortal ministry in verses 1 and 2, and then kind of, okay, here's some mortal ministry things at the second coming, and then verses 4 through 9, here's the effect of Christ's ministry during the millennium, and here's how happy we are. Ends with a psalm of rejoicing. Chapter 62 focuses on the blessings that await Zion. And you get just pairs. This is a blessing at Zion, and it's repeated again. And here's a blessing that awaits Zion. Here's another blessing. Great chapter focusing on the blessings that await Zion. Chapter 63 is a focus on the second coming of Jesus Christ. The words that Isaiah uses in this chapter that help describe the day, the second coming of Jesus Christ, include, he talks about his garments, the righteousness, 
greatness of strength that he will save or bring salvation, that there's anger, fury, blood, and vengeance. 64. Focuses on the astonishing efforts that God will do in the last days to cause his servants to preach the gospel and encourage everyone to repent so they may escape the great destruction at Christ's second coming. 65. 60, 64 ends with a couple questions. First, will God keep his presence? Second, will he refrain himself from those who are wicked? Okay, is God going to have the presence with the righteous? How about with the wicked? Do they have the presence? What's going to happen there? And the second question kind of focus, will God keep silent and punish the wicked beyond what they, what they want to be punished? So chapter 65 is the answer to those two questions. And once again, is in a chiastic form. The emphasis of this chapter is on the creation of the New Jerusalem and the description of the earth and millennium. 66 is a testimony that God will reign personally on the earth. And teaches a little bit about the second coming with, it's a testimony, God knows us. He knows our thoughts, our works, our intents. And then it ends with some things about millennium. So I did that overview, and now I look at, okay, this is simplistic. Here's three major themes of all these chapters. The last days, the second coming, and the millennium. So as I'm teaching this in, in maybe a class, yeah, I may just say, okay, there's way too much to cover. There's prophecy about second days. There's prophecy about second coming. There's prophecy about millennium. I may put them into small groups, three different groups, and say, okay, here's your little, and I know these aren't all the verses that I just have up here uh, listed, um, but on the last days, here's five different verses or five different sets of verses. You group, you study about these prophecy about last days, come back and think which, tell us which is most relevant to us today. Hey, here's some things about second coming. Why does God want us to know about this, about the second coming? Here's a millennium. What hope does that give you about the world and about our future, and about the future of the world, right? So I'm just going to cover a few of these. I'm going to start off with one speaking about the second coming in Isaiah 61. Now I'm going to start in verse 6. Isaiah 61, verse 6. But ye shall be named priests of the Lord. And I read this earlier. I love that because it's a reference to what Exodus is. It's not just a certain group of people, but there are going to be anyone who's accepting. Men who are accepting will be known as the priests of the Lord. And the women will be priestesses. And men shall call you the ministers. Now that's the ministers of our God is also in Exodus. Hey, this is who you're going to be, a fulfillment of the law of Moses, which leads us to Christ. Okay, and you shall eat the riches of the Gentiles, and in their glory shall ye boast yourself. For I, the Lord, love judgment. I hate robbery for burnt offering. Hey, you may be one of these burnt offerings, but don't rob what's most important here. Yes, we should be doing, uh, this is Old Testament burnt offerings, right? And our, our offerings are a contrite uh, spirit, broken heart. But don't be that self-righteous where you're robbing someone else to be, be for your righteousness. I don't know if that makes sense. Okay, I will direct their work in truth. I'll make an everlasting covenant with them. Then verse 10, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God. I love that. Joyful in my God. For he hath clothed me with the garments of salvation. He hath covered me with the robes of righteousness as a bridegroom decked himself with ornaments, as a bride adorneth herself with jewels. Now, there's some imagery here. Okay, the robes of righteousness. That is actually, is part of an apron or an embroidered apron. These robes of righteousness. He's covered me with these embroidered aprons. Okay, the ornaments he's referring to, that's once again a reference to, with the law of Moses, it's part of a cap worn by the high priest. He is referring to some of the things of the Old Testament. The high priest of Israel daily arrayed himself in a golden garment, symbolizing the bridegroom of Jehovah. The seven pieces of the temple, or tabernacle, clothing, discussed in, you can get it in Exodus 28, 29, Leviticus 9, made up the golden garment of the high priest. And once again, he's referring to that, that you're going to be a priest or priestesses of the Lord. And you're going to be adorned with her jewels, 
it's understood that you're going to be clothed. Now, this is Jules' address. And I go back to Great Cross Reference in Revelations 19, 7 through 8. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the land is come, and his wife has made ready for her, made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. And you tie that into the parable of the ten virgins. They're waiting for that, that, that marriage. The, this marriage, the bridegroom is Christ. The saints are the ones who have that covenant relationship with Christ. And that fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. And so Isaiah is referring to this. Hey, kind of a summary. I'm referring to all the symbolism. Remember, it's your righteousness that God's going to array you with, that's going to help prepare you to be in God's presence, whether it's millennium or where it is. But it's going to help prepare you for the second coming. Chapter 62 now, this is kind of a last days things. And the Gentiles, in the last days, they're going to see thy righteousness. And all kings thy glory, thou shalt be called by a new name. Now, that new name, I just add this. Uh, Bruce R. McConkie, Elder McConkie, I think it's a little bit of speculation, but I like what he wrote on it. He said the new name of Israel may be the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, or Saint, or maybe it's just called Christ. You take upon you the name of Christ. I love all those type things. But it's a new name, which the mouth of the Lord shall name. And then you get this imagery in chapter 62 in the last days. God's going to have you in the right hand, verse 8, by the arm of his strength. He's going to have you, verse 9, in the courts of, your, of his holiness. And the invitation, verse 10, go through, go through the gates you got to be entering it in the gates. Now, the courts of the holiness just has this imagery of, well, the first, verse 9, you're gathering things, you're bringing it in, into the courts of holiness. So it's not really, the gathering's not of food, it's not of fruit, but you're gathering things into God, into his courts, into his temple. It's the gathering of Israel. So a part of this chapter, you talk about last days, is we're gathering Israel. So those course of holiness, great cross-reference is Alma 25, or 26, verse 5. Behold, the field was ripe, and blessed are ye, for ye did thrust in the sickle, and did reap with your might. All the day long did ye labor, and behold, the number of your sheaves, and they shall be gathered into the garners, that they are not wasted. Elder Neil A. Maxwell said, When the Lord directs us to bring many souls unto, he, unto me, this means bringing them all the way into the garner of the church, not simply dropping them off outside the door. Clearly, when we baptize, our eyes should gaze beyond the baptismal font to the holy temple, the great garner into which the sheaves should be finally gathered is the holy temple. Now, chapter 65, or 62, verses 3 through 5, I'm just kind of skipping a little bit. Thou shalt be Thou shalt also be a crown of glory in the hand of the Lord, and a royal diadem in the hand of thy God. Thou shalt be no more termed forsaken. I love these terms, the imagery. Hey, you're not going to be thinking about your forsaken anymore. Neither shall thy land be termed desolate. But thou shalt be called Hebzi Bah. That word means my desire is in her. It's also the name of, of King Hezekiah's, Hezekiah's wife. And my land is going to be named Bula, if I got that pronunciation right. Married wife. Okay, for the Lord delighteth in thee, thy land shall be married. It's kind of like what Paul teaches in Romans 7, 4. That wherefore, my brethren, ye also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ, that ye should be married to another even to him who is raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. You're no more forsaken. Christ brings forth the fruit. He's going to help you as you prepare to meet the bridegroom. Okay, and then it ends verse 5. For as a young man marrieth a virgin, so shall thy sons marry thee. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, as Christ rejoices over her church, so shall God rejoice over thee.
Now I'm just going to kind of conclude the, just our time together with just a few more verses referring to the second coming. Isaiah chapter 63, 1 through 7. Who is that that comes from Edom? Now Edom literally means red earth. Who comes from Edom, the red earth? And dyed garments from Balzara. That's one who presses grapes. And, okay, just picture this in your mind. Who is it that's coming that has an appearance of red? That It's like they've been on the grapes. They've been on this little grape, smashing grapes with their feet. They've been stomping on it, and their garments are now dark color because of the stains of the grapes. Verse 2, Wherefore, art thou red in thine apparel, and thy garments like unto him that treadeth in the wine vat? Who is it that's coming in red apparel? I know we get second coming pictures. Sometimes we have Christ and it's dramatic and Christ comes down white. But the scriptures seem to indicate and testify that he is one who will come in red apparel. And the one who comes, Jesus Christ, will say, I have treaded the winepress alone. And of the people there was none with me. And I'm just skipping verse 5. There was none to help. Verse 5, there was none to uphold. Jesus Christ is the only one who could have fulfilled and, and done the atonement for us. And he lets us know that. There's no one else who could have done this. He's testifying that he is the Christ. Now, anciently with those wine presses, they're used to crush the bitter olives. And under minor pressure, when they do it, it has that sweet oil. That's used for light, used for healing, a lot of different things. And I love that imagery of oil, symbolic, of light, healing, soothing. That there is a press of the wine of the of a wine press. There's pressure. For Christ, that includes the pressures that are upon us, the anxieties that we have, the pain, the suffering. That press, we know in the word, that word Hebrew. Uh, Hebrew word for Gethsemane, or I said that wrong, Gethsemane is Hebrew. It's a wine press. That's why I think Christ is focusing on that. Why your garments red? Section 133 testifies, it's me. I My garments are red because there have been wicked and they have been, I don't want to say stomped on me, that's a little bit strong, but there comes a day of reckoning. And Christ has fulfilled the atonement and have all of his enemies have been subdued, including death and hell. Having blooded every poor, Elder Maxwell testified, how red his arraignment must have been in Gethsemane, how crimson that cloak. No wonder when Christ comes in power and glory, he will come in remaining, in reminding red attire, signifying not only of the winepress of wrath, but also to bring our remembrance how he suffered for each of us in Gethsemane and on Calvary. I love in verse 7. You've just had this imagery. Verse 1, you got the red, you got the wine press, you've got that pressure, you've got that pain. And then Isaiah inserts, and it's repeated in the Doctrine and Covenants, in the context of the second coming. Verse 7, I will mention, <laughs> I got to get this in here. I got to make sure you know this. The loving kindness of the Lord and the praises of the Lord, according to all the Lord has bestowed upon us, the great goodness towards the house of Israel, which he hath bestowed upon them according to his mercies, according to the multitude of his loving kindness. Section 133, verse 52, says, I will mention the Lord these, these kindnesses of the Lord and the praises of the Lord, according to all the Lord has bestowed upon us, and the great goodness towards the house of Israel, which hath bestowed upon them according to his mercies, according to the multitude of his love kindness forever and ever. How long will we speak of our gratitude for Christ's atonement? The scriptures are advising forever and ever. And in this verse, section 133.52, verse 18, But be ye glad, and rejoice forever in which I create. For behold, I create in Jerusalem a rejoicing, and her people a joy. And I will rejoice in Jerusalem, and joy in my people. And the voice of weeping shall no more be heard in her, nor the voice of crying. I love that. The words glad, rejoice, rejoicing, joy. 
there is joy in Christ. And as we spent some time together in Isaiah, I hope you felt that there is joy in Christ. Even though some of the last chapters of Isaiah talk about some, maybe some things about that are leading up to the, to the second coming and some things that may or happen in the second coming that are going to be difficult and the peace that's going to happen in the millennium. Through all three phrases, there is joy in Christ. I hope that today what, we, what I talked about, I know I skipped around a little bit, helps you to believe a little bit more in Jesus Christ that gives you hope, that helps you lift up your hearts to rejoice. And for me, just like the Savior testified, I agree. Greater are the words of Isaiah. Isaiah is relevant. He is applicable. He, his words in my life have given me hope in my life today. So now just I'm going to pause. If you're teaching this, just some thoughts. I mean, other than always emphasize relevance, applicability, and the hope that's found in the teachings of Isaiah. And you know, what did you study today that have you help you have a more meaningful fast? How are you going to have a more meaningful fast? Maybe you write a goal for your next fast that's more meaningful. And maybe what blessings do you need from your fast? And maybe as you're doing these teaching, uh, teaching these chapters, boy, do it through themes. Last days, second coming, maybe millennium. And there's a verse in chapter 63, verse 32, sorry, 63, 22, where Isaiah talks about the Lord is going to do a lot in our day to hasten his work in his time. Maybe we'd be pondering, what's the Lord been doing in our day to hasten his work in his time? Hey, thank you for spending some time with me today as we've looked at Isaiah chapters 58 through 66. And once again, just to shout out my gratitude for Cedar Fort for what they've done to help publish uh, my two-volume set. It was a joy for me to write it, and I hope it's been beneficial to you. Have a great day. Keep smiling.